Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. She is a distinguished professor of psychological science and law at the University of California, Irvine. She is also fellow of the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. She is best known for her groundbreaking work on the misinformation effect and eyewitness memory, and also the creation and nature of false memories, including recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse. So, Dr. Loftus, thank you, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Sure, my pleasure. Okay, great. So... Uh, today we're going to talk a lot about memory and how we can affect memory and how memory works in a legal context, let's say, and also a little bit about um, recovered memories and childhood trauma. That is basically most of the work that you've done. We're going to try to touch a, li a little bit on all of the on, on all of it. So uh, let me first ask you, uh, in what ways can memory be interfered with? And in that sense, maybe you would like to talk about the misinformation effect, but you might also want to refer to other types of things, but please go ahead. One of the uh, ways that memory can be interfered with is when a person is exposed to some misleading information. So if you have a person who's, who's had an experience, let's say they've witnessed a crime or they've witnessed uh, an auto accident, and later on, for some reason, they get some misleading information about the accident. Maybe another witness mistakenly remembers some detail, like that the, that the car went through a red light in, instead of a green light. Um, well, what this misinformation can sometimes do is modify the original witness's um, memory and cause an alteration or a distortion in the memory, and you end up with somebody who's remembering something differently from the way it really happened. So that's just one example of how, how memories can be interfered with through misinformation. Mm -hmm. But this memory alteration, let's say, that you're talking about, uh, it has to be done by other people, or can it be done by the person himself? I mean, are there any cognitive or psychological mechanisms that can make memories change without interference by other people? The short answer to that is yes. Um, we can distort our own memories. Well, what, what we do is we will sometimes draw inferences about what might have happened or what could have happened. And those inferences can then solidify and, and start to feel like, like memories. So we, we call that process auto-suggestion, where people are actually uh, uh, almost unconsciously sort of suggesting things to themselves. They don't they don't realize that they're they're doing that 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 these inferences and thoughts about what possibly could have happened uh, can turn into what feels like memory. 
Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because there's that common idea, I mean common among uh, common people, that's why I call it common, uh, that uh, every time we remember something, every time we recall a memory, we sort of rewrite it, that is the memory that we recall uh, is modified in some way and every time we do that we end up with a slightly different memory. Is that correct? I, I would probably put it more conservatively. Uh, I mean, many, many scientists don't like to use, you know, all the time, every time, you know, or, uh, you know, on the end, other end of the spectrum, never. Uh, so I would say that often when we recall a memory, we, we change it or we recall it slightly differently. But there are also situations where you're recalling a memory um, that you've previously recalled of an experience that you had earlier, and you just, you know, time is short, so you just utter a few details about it, um, and it, it, it hasn't really changed. You've just, you've just given, you know, a little snapshot of, of the memory. So that's why I'm, I, I like to shy away from... From, from the idea that every time you recall it, it's, it's, you change it. Mm -hmm. I understand. And is it true that uh, we have m more accurate memories of events that are more emotionally salient? That is, that they, uh, that they have a more strong emotional component? Well, that's just a little tricky, uh, an issue about the role of emotion, because, you know, some degree of emotional experience can, uh, can actually, you know, improve your memory. You pay attention and maybe you store some details. But too much uh, emotion or fright or arousal uh, can end up uh, having some deleterious effects on memory. Uh, so the the picture's a little bit more complicated. And there there's some work that, that shows that when something pretty traumatic or emotional happens to you, you you remember the gist of it and maybe a few core details. I, I mean, you know it was a car crash and, and, and not a plane crash. Uh, but m many of the peripheral details can suffer in memory, even when it's a very highly emotional traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And I guess that um, many of these things that we've been talking about can apply in the context of eyewitness testimony and the court. So, uh, I mean, uh, are there some, uh, some main cognitive mechanisms that apply in this context? We've already talked about the misinformation effect. I've already asked you about how memories can be rewritten in several ways and about suggestions and things like that. So when it comes to eyewitness testimony, what are some of the main ways it can be flawed? <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I, I, I want you to know that I, I teach a, like a three-month course on eyewitness testimony, so there's a lot to say here. Okay. And I and others have written very long books and textbooks on eyewitness testimony, hundreds of pages. There, there are so many things that can affect uh, eyewitness memory. Um, I, well, I'll just I'll I'll give you one example that that 
that I think is a particularly important one in criminal cases. Um, in criminal cases, one of the things that witnesses have to try to do is to identify a person who committed a crime. They have to go to a lineup and look at six or seven individuals standing there and try to pick out the person who is the criminal. Um, one of the factors that's important in that situation is the race of the witness and the race of the of suspect. Because if you have a cross-racial identification situation, if you have a situation where a member of one race is trying to identify a stranger of a different race, we make more mistakes. So if, if, if you're an a, a, a Asian witness trying to identify a, a, a Caucasian uh, person, you're going to make more mistakes than if you want to try to identify a stranger of your own race. And it, 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 it's true with all different kinds of cross-race identifications, blacks, whites, Asians, um, and more. Mm -hmm. But is it because it's harder for us to distinguish different faces from people that are of a race that is distinct from our own? Or does it have some element of racism sometimes? So, for example, is it the case that people tend to identify more uh, black people as perpetrators or something like that? Or, or are you only referring to the face itself and its features? No, I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about um, not, not racism, because of this cross-racial identification deficit that we have, the reduced ability to accurately identify faces of strangers of a different race, is something that's true in people who are pretty free of any feelings of bias uh, towards members of that other racial group. And in fact, the cross-racial deficit has even been seen in, in children as, as, you know, as young as six years old. So we don't think it has to do with feelings of prejudice or racism. It, it's probably that we, you know, we pay attention to different details when we're looking at faces of different races. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, again, about eyewitness memory, uh, what about in the context of the court, when people uh, are, for example, talking to the jury or talking to the judge and uh, exposing what happened, giving their testimony? Uh, can't things like an anxiety and stress and other aspects like that affect how people recall things? Now, usually, the, when when people talk about stress, they're they're really talking about the stress of being a victim or a witness to a crime or an accident. So they're talking about the stress that's present at the time of the initial event that people are going to later have to try to remember. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it can be somewhat stressful to testify in in a court case. Um, it's often not an easy experience, but it's not as traumatic and stressful as actually being a crime victim. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, and these—I uh, I, I mean, the, these um, these research you've done on eyewitness testimony—does uh, it apply both to adults and to children? Uh, yes, 
uh, you know, many of these same factors, the cross-race problem, the potential uh, negative effects of misinformation, and many of the other factors uh, apply both to adults and to children. Um, but we also know some ways in which adults and children are different. Young children, for example, are even more susceptible to memory contamination than, say, older children or adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. So, uh, and what would you say are the kinds of negative consequences that might follow from not taking seriously the limitations of what, of eyewitness testimony? Well, it's th it can have serious consequences. Um, if, uh, if an eyewitness testifies in court and implicates a particular person who happens to be innocent, but the eyewitness is mistaken but confident, then a jury can believe the eyewitness testimony, convict the defendant, convict an innocent person, and this, of course, ruins the life of the innocent person and that person's extended family, because many of the family members are horribly affected when an innocent person is convicted and sent off to prison. Not to mention that when that happens, uh, the real perpetrator is still out on the streets, possibly committing more crimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, expanding a little bit beyond eyewitness testimony, in the court, uh, when it comes to these memory flaws that we all have, can they also affect judges and jurors and others? Well, there are actually, there are actually uh, surveys of what people know about eyewitness testimony. What do jurors know? What do they believe to be true? What do judges believe to be true about eyewitness memory? And where are their beliefs consistent with what the science has revealed? And where do they have beliefs that are inconsistent or contradicted by what the science uh, has shown? Uh, many lay jurors do have beliefs that are contradicted by memory science, and some judges do as well, because the judges aren't particularly trained in psychology in general or the psychology of memory. Um, and judges, too, are human and, and can be heavily influenced by an eyewitness report when it is confident and detailed uh, and emotional. It's, it's hard to resist, even when it's mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yes, I understand. And the, are there any solutions to improving the reliability of eyewitnesses? There are a number of uh, potential solutions that various psychologists have proposed. So, for example, there are solutions at the level of the police station. When an eyewitness goes to the police station and has to try to, for example, report about what happened or make an identification of a suspect, look at photographs or look at a live lineup, there are a whole lot of questions. It's not such a simple process, like just look at these things and tell me what you think. How many, how many people should be in the lineup? Uh, what should the instruction be that you put to a witness? It's important to say, for example, that the perpetrator may or may not be in there, it's just as important to exonerate the innocent as to find the guilty person. 
You want to reduce the pressure on an eyewitness to pick someone, anyone, in order to have the case be solved. And certain instructions are better at doing that. Um, what should the fillers look like, the people in the lineup who are not the suspect? Um, and there are various, uh, you know, policies about what those fillers should look like and how they should be chosen. Who should conduct the lineup? There's a very strong argument being made that the person who conducts the lineup should not be the investigator who knows who the suspect is. Because when the investigator knows who the suspect is, they can even accidentally cue the witness or, or later give the witness feedback that can artificially inflate the confidence of the witness. So we have recommended that the, the person who conducts the, the, the identification test should not know who the suspect is. So those are a few examples of things that can be done at, uh, you know, at the level of police interaction with witnesses uh, and the, the, the methods of interviewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, several things that can be done here. Uh, and can expert te testimony improve the outcome of the judgment process? Well, I mean, many of us um, believe that because uh, jurors and, and some judges have beliefs about memory uh, that are not in line with the scientific evidence, that some method of, of, of educating the jurors about memory would be helpful to, to give those jurors accurate information that they can use to make their judgments and decisions. And uh, even the National Academy of Sciences in the United States um, has issued a report in which these experts argue for greater education of jurors, either through jury instructions or through uh, expert testimony. Um, and so, you know, we think that this can only improve the situation and help these jurors arrive at better decisions. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about other to another topic that is repressed and recovered memory. So uh, this was a big deal back in the 80s and I guess also the early 90s in the US because there were lots of cases where psychoanalysts that believe in this sort of defense mechanism that is repressed memories of traumatic events uh, they come up with memories, they suggested them to their patients, and then there were some innocent people that were uh, accused and convicted even of crimes of uh, child sexual abuse and other things like that, so it was really awful. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, this thing of the repressed and recovered memories. I mean, where does this come from and does it have any scientific basis to it or is just uh, BS, let's say? Well, I'll, I'll, start with, um, I'll start with the case that brought me into that controversy. Uh, it was a case of a man named George Franklin and uh, Franklin was accused of murder he was accused of uh, murdering a little eight-year-old girl 20 years earlier, and the only testimony against him was the testimony of his daughter, Eileen Franklin, who 
claimed that when she was eight years old, she saw her father murder her little best friend, uh, rape and murder her little best friend, and that she repressed the memory for, for 20 years, and now the memory was back. Uh, she also claimed that she repressed her memory for uh, sexual abuse that he committed over extended periods of time, and she repressed her memory for other murders. But Franklin went on trial for this repressed memory that was recovered of him murdering a little eight-year-old girl. Yeah. And it was then that I began to look into deeply into the literature on repression. And I was pretty shocked to find that there was no credible evidence for the idea that you could witness all these murders, experience all these rapes, and completely repress all this experience into the unconscious and reliably recover it 20 years later. No credible scientific evidence. Um, and yet, uh, George Franklin was convicted, and he was probably the first American citizen to be convicted of murder based on nothing other than the claim of a repressed memory that was recovered bolstered by a psychiatrist who uh, essentially, in so many words, verified that the memory was real. Uh, and after that case, there be we began to see scores or hundreds of other cases where people were claiming they repressed their memory and now the memory was back, often of sexual abuse, child sexual abuse. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, who were innocent ended up getting accused, families getting destroyed, people getting sued, uh, people getting prosecuted based on this unsupported um, notion about repressed memories. That's what was going on in the United States and other parts of North America and then other parts of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and, and even other parts of the world. And this all comes from psychoanalysis and uh, primarily the work by Sigmund Freud, right? Well, the idea of a, this repressed memory maybe had its roots in, you know, early theorizing about Freud. It wasn't just the psychoanalysts who were doing the suggestive therapy uh, that was leading these patients to develop these beliefs and what they thought were memories. It, there were all kinds of different mental health professionals that were using techniques that, uh, you know, were potentially dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yes. And to this day, is there any evidence whatsoever that repressed memories are real, or at least there is some truth to them? Oh, the, there, you can certainly find cases where people have not thought about something for a long time, and then they get reminded of it. Uh, they can even have an experience that's pretty horrible and not think about it for a long time, be reminded of it. There's some kind of a retrieval cue. Uh, this is something that memory scientists, you know, would, would agree to. But the idea that we can have massive uh, repression of extensive brutalization that is banished into the unconscious and, and reliably recover all this later by some process that's beyond ordinary forgetting and remembering, it, for that there is no 
incredible scientific support. And I think that's the interesting bit, because when they talk about repressed memories, psychoanalysts or other types of psychotherapists, they always refer to traumatic memories, particularly ones that occur during childhood or adolescence or something like that. But, uh, I mean, isn't it the case that traumatic memories aren't... Uh, really that easy to forget or to repress? I mean, people remember traumatic memory, uh, memories, right? Well, that, that's what many of, uh, you know, psychiatrists and other mental health professionals have written that, uh, you know, when you have a traumatic memory, especially if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, you're terribly upset by the experience. You have the opposite problem. You have intrusive memories. You can't get this out of your mind. Um, and that, that, that's the kind of thing that, that you see with many kinds of traumatic experiences when people are experiencing, uh, you know, sudden death of a loved one or major uh, natural disasters, earthquakes and fires and, or other kinds of, of bodily injuries. You, you know, you, you, you have intrusive thoughts, intrusive memories. Mm -hmm. But then the other bit about this question about what happened back in the 80s, 90s and so on, and this thing that you participated in where lots, or lots of innocent people were convicted of crimes they didn't commit based on false memories that were implanted in people that were considered victims, let's say, victims of some type of crime. I mean, there's that bit about the creation and nature of false memories also. So, I mean, uh, how can people have completely false memories implanted into them? Well, I'm glad you asked about that because after after the murder case of of George Franklin, uh, where I believe um, where I, I believe it's certainly possible that she developed what she thought was a memory uh, based on suggestive information in her environment, things that were and the details of of the daughter's memory really were out there in newspapers and television coverage and in the public domain I wanted to study how is it you can how is it you can plant a seed in of memory in someone's mind it can grow into something so big so detailed and so I and my collaborators uh, devised a, a method for doing that we we planted a suggestion in the minds of ordinary adults that when they were a child, five or six years old, uh, they were lost in a shopping mall, that they were frightened and crying and ultimately rescued by an elderly person and reunited with their family. We planted this suggestion with several suggestive interviews, and we ended up finding that about a quarter, just after a few suggestive interviews, a quarter were de developing all are part of this made-up uh, experience about uh, being lost and rescued in this way. And then other investigators started planning even more bizarre or unusual false memories, that you nearly drowned, 
and had to be rescued by a lifeguard or that you were attacked by a vicious animal or, or that you witnessed a person being demonically possessed. And these kinds of false memories can be planted in otherwise healthy, ordinary adults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And uh, are some people more vulnerable to false memories than others? That is, are they, they more vulnerable to being suggestible, for example, and to, being, and to having false memories implanted in them? Well, as you might imagine, um, psychologists have asked that question before and have found, <coughs> excuse me, that some people are a little bit more susceptible to memory contamination of this kind than others. So if you are somebody who tends to have lapses in, in memory and attention, if you have uh, difficulty remembering whether you did something or just thought about doing that thing, you're a little bit more susceptible. If you're someone who's low in cognitive ability, you're somewhat more susceptible. But you have to keep in mind that we have done a study where we've looked at people who have exceptional memories. They're, they're rare people who can remember just about everything they did every day of their adult life. And even these individuals are susceptible to developing false memories. Mm -hmm. So this is something that uh, any people, even people with high cognitive ability, might be su susceptible to? Yeah, yes. Uh, right. I mean, you know, when I said people low in cognitive ability are somewhat more susceptible, it, that, you know, that's a correlation. Uh, but it still leaves many people who are high in cognitive ability who can be influenced in, in this way. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, in what ways did these patients that were basically subject to, to these uh, implanted false memories, after, after the fact... Didn't they have some sort of negative psychological impact in them? Uh, well, out out there in the real world, when some people have developed false memories, and some of them developed false memories of even satanic ritual abuse, very extreme ritual abuse. Some of them then developed uh, a, a condition that they where they thought they had multiple personality disorder, which is now called dissociative identity disorder. Um, and, and many of them got sicker rather than feeling better. So this, this, is, not, this is not something that, uh, that I would recommend uh, for anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I understand. So let me just ask you one last question. Um, this thing about uh, repressed memories and the, the plantation of false memories, uh, is there um, an age, uh, um, I mean, is there an earliest age or stage, or stage of development where people can already be susceptible to these? I mean, are children also susceptible to these, or even more so than adults, or, or not? Uh, well, young children are especially susceptible to 
uh, these kinds of contaminating influences. And, and there have been a number of studies with young children. Uh, I collaborated on one where we planted a memory that when you were younger, you got your hand caught in a mousetrap, and you had to go to a hospital and get the mousetrap removed. And, and you watch one of these kids being interviewed about this made-up experience that was completely made up and not true. And you can ask the child questions like, well, where was the mousetrap? Oh, it was in the basement. Well, where in the basement? Well, it was by the woodpile. They'll, they'll give all kinds of details for a completely made-up, untrue experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And so just before we go back then with all of these cases that happened, particularly in the U.S. involving these psychotherapists that planted false memories into these people that then led to uh, the conviction of innocent people. I mean, did something happen to those people? Were they penalized or punished in some important way or not? Oh, well, by the way, I do have to admit, mention that these uh, practices and these tragedies were went on not just in the United States, but also uh, many parts of Canada, Sweden, Britain, France, um, I mean, that, Australia. There's so many stories in so many different parts of the world. It, it, was, it, it may have initiated itself in North America, but it was a problem in many different places. So what happened to the therapist? Well, first of all, some of the insurance companies in the United States um, started because the therapist started to get sued for planning false memories. And some of the insurance companies that were uh, representing these therapists said, if you do this recovered memory therapy, we're not going to insure you anymore. Uh, so that helped to curb the practice a little bit. Some of the publicity about these disastrous cases of innocent people uh, helped to curb the practices a little. But it's not over. It's not over. There's, there's still people who hold these beliefs about repressed memories and act on them. So even nowadays, it's the case that there are psychotherapists that resort to this kind of practice? Well, they, don't, they won't admit to doing repressed memory therapy, but they'll admit to many of the details of that kind of therapy. You know, they'll admit that they sometimes suspect that a patient was sexually abused even when the patient hasn't said so, or they suspect even when the patient denies it, or they use guided imagery, or they use hypnosis to try to get out trauma memories, or they use some other technique that they think will get out trauma memories that end up being suggestive techniques that are potentially dangerous for these patients. That's very interesting. Why do you think that it's the case that recovered memory therapy is still practiced after these years and after all the cases that happened and came to public? I mean, why is it that there are people that stick to those kinds of practices? Well, because there's still a large number of mental health professionals who believe in, in repressed memory. And, uh, and they find some way to support their beliefs. Uh, they'll say something like, science isn't the only way to know things. 
I've had patients, and I know my patients are having repressed memories because they tell me things that they, uh, when these memories come back to them. Uh, and, and so it's, 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 uh, we've got a, a society that has, is full of these people who have beliefs that are problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. Loftus, let's end on that note. Uh, before we go, would you like to make reference to some places on the internet or elsewhere uh, where people can get access to your work? Um, well, first of all, I have a website. My University of California, Irvine website has lots and lots of publications that people can just download for free. And, um, and then that, that can just send you to other publications. And I'm sorry, I, I've enjoyed talking to you, but I think I have to go now because my battery on my phone is beeping and telling me the battery's running out. Oh, okay, no problem, no problem. We're rendering the interview right now. So, Dr. Loftus, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show, and it was a real pleasure to everyone. Okay, thank you, and good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Bye-bye. website has lots and lots of publications that people can just download for free. And, um, and then that, that can just send you to other publications. And I'm sorry, I, I've enjoyed talking to you, but I think I have to go now because my battery on my phone is beeping and telling me the battery's running out. Oh, okay, no problem, no problem. We're rendering the interview right now. So, Dr. Loftus, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show, and it was a real pleasure to everyone. Okay, thank you, and good luck to you. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with leading intellectuals from around the world. And so, to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. You can also support me via PayPal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Pereira Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gilinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Sergio Condriano, Jane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henrik Alenius, John Connors, Drs. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingart, my four producers, Isar Webbe, Rosie, Jim Frank, and Lucas Stafiniak, and my executive producer, Michel Rogieski. Thank you for all.